0: This podcast is brought to you by Jess Liederman, the author of a new best selling novel entitled Heart Set Free. Please listen to podcast number 709, where, in Greg's interview with Jess, they discuss his transformation from being an atheist to surrendering his life to Christ, and how he now writes stories that reveal truths that change lives. Truths of the Heart. Heart Set Free is an epic work of historical fiction that begins in the Alaska Territory in 1925 as a boy and his mother go in search of a man who abandoned them for a beautiful woman and continues into present day. It's a riveting tale of men and women who journey from the darkness of doubt to triumphant faith and from the ache of loneliness to everlasting love. Please listen to podcast number 709 with author Jess Liederman, as we explore the wonders that come from faith in the grace and power of God's loving heart. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voysin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And as I do all the time, Dudley, I like to let my listeners know how thankful and grateful I am for them. Um... And the reason for that is over the past 14 and a half years, without them, there would be no inside personal growth. And it's because of them that I continue to do this. Now, today, actually joining me from New York, but actually lives in Portland, Oregon, uh, is the author of a new book called Fusion Leadership, Unleashing the Movement of Monday Morning Enthusiasts by Dudley R. Slater and his co-author, Stephen T. Taylor. Good day to you, Dudley. How are you doing in New York?
1: Great. Thank you. I'm doing great. And it's a delight to be on the podcast with you today.
0: Well, it's good having you on and giving us, my listeners, an opportunity to learn more about your journey and what you've learned about leadership along the way so that you can share some of your insights with them. It is a a topic which is coming up a lot lately, Noticing a lot of books on it, and that is because I think we're seeing a lack of leadership in a lot of places. So it's an opportunity for you to really uh, and let our listeners know, you know, kind of how you got where you are. But I'm gonna let them know first a bit about you. Dudley Slater uh, learned firsthand how to inspire and lead people as the co-founder and 15-year CEO of Integra Telecom grew the company from nine people to over 2,000 employees, transitioning it from a startup to a national prominence of one of the 10 largest fiber-based telecommunications companies in the United States. Under Dudley's leadership, Integra raised over $1.3 billion in capital and constructed one of the most advanced metropolitan fiber networks in its region, helping to earn him the distinction of being the named the Entrepreneur of the Year in the Northwest in 2011 by Ernst & Young. And his co-author is Stephen Taylor, an award-winning journalist and writer. There's more than 750 articles, editorials, essays, and other works published by more than 60 organizations, including The Nation, The Washington Post, A Public Citizen, The New York Times, the best-selling history uh, book Chronicle of the 20th Century, and CBS News. Um, Both of these gentlemen have tremendous background and Dudley, you know, I always look at leadership as a fascinating topic and one in which, you know, someone like yourself, who's had such a background of 15 years with Integra Telecom and you turned what I call the soul of the organization around. And you were inspired by the Greenleaf servant leadership model, as you talk about in the book. What was it about this model that inspired you to take the action you did with inside Integra Telecom uh, and to want to wake up the fact that you needed to awaken the soul of the individuals in the company?
1: That's a great place to start. I, I'm a huge fan of Robert Greenleaf and, and the tenants of servant leadership. Um, in fact, I would go so far as to say I'm an aspiring servant leader, Um, What I like about that model is it really turns the old traditional notion of leadership upside down. And it recognizes what I think is the ultimate truth, which is any organization is going to be best positioned to succeed if the front, what I call the frontline workers, meaning the, the the individuals who are out there, Every day dealing with the customers, you know, every day dealing with the nuts and bolts of the organization if if those people are Are energized and 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 have a sense of passion for the mission of the organization the organization is going to be successful and so the question I struggled with for years and this is after going to you know top business schools and all sorts of education, which uh, never really answered this question for me, is how do you inspire those people? Um, and and so I, I I think the servant leadership model starts in the right place. The reason I chose the um, just to follow that, if I could, Greg, uh, with the next obvious question, which is, well, what's the difference between fusion leadership and servant leadership, um, if I may? The, the distinction I make is, and I describe myself as an aspiring uh, servant leader, as I understand servant leadership, it requires the leader subordinate his or her interests to others. And while well, I think that's a wonderful ambition, I don't think it's very realistic or practical. I think we all um, inherently are driven by our personal needs for ourselves and our families, and that's okay in my in my view of the world, provided, We pursue our personal ambitions in a way that also rewards the people around us in our organization. And and, and that distinction between being subservient or what I call at least equal to the interests of your team is is really the distinction between fusion leadership and servant leadership. It's subtle, but it's important.
0: Well, I think it is a bit subtle and you speak about um, the ego in your book and, you know, me having a background in psychology, I always talk to leaders about them being able to put a check, sometimes their ego at the door. What comment would you have or would you make to those leaders today? Um, you have some great um, other things we're going to be talking about with relation to meetings and so on. but. Uh, Steve Jobs always used to say, "Hey, when you go into a room to develop the product, um, you know, leave your ego outside because we're supposed to be working as a team." Um, you want to make a quick comment about that?
1: I, I think it's wonderful guidance, and and if if we were able to truly do that, I think it would be fantastic. I, I just don't think it's realistic. I don't think we humans are capable of leaving our egos at the door. So. I've, I've tried to develop a framework that accepts what I believe is the reality that we're all somewhat ego driven and, and really wrestling with the question, well, how do, you, how do you do both? How do you serve yourself and create a, an organization that has engaged and passionate employees? And I think that's um, imminently feasible. And, and, and that's the specific topic that the book attempts to explore is, is how do you do that?
0: Well, one of the things that you did early on is you had an employee who was an engineer that intimidated you, and his name was Tony, and he was an engineer at Integra. Um, I think this story about Tony, because he would say, and I remember this distinctly, and how many um, uh, MBAs does it take to put in a light bulb, right? And, And he had some sarcastic remark. Tell us about Tony and how you won him over um, using your leadership style.
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great story. And and I learned a lot from Tony. This was very early in my journey. I would just become um, the CEO of, of this early stage company. At that time, we only had a dozen or so employees and Tony was the guy that he he was a hard nosed, very smart engineer. And he, he also was a, a massive influencer of others. Whatever he said kind of carried the weight regardless of title and and other. He was just one of the people that everybody listened to because he was so smart and he scared the um, he, he scared the 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 crap out of me because um, he had such command of others and I was a young uh, newly vented leader and um, I found that when I got around Tony he would he would kind of treat me in a condescending way, and and I knew I needed him. I I'm, I'm I was not an engineer, and I needed somebody to keep the network functioning. I needed his engineering skills. I also knew he was highly valued by others, and and therefore he was um, somebody that just had to be part of the organization. I mean, he's awfully good at what he did. So I went from you know not having experience to all of a sudden being responsible for the organization within tony and um, I initially just walked on eggshells and tried to, you know, not upset Tony and, and tried to um do the best I could to um you know operate with him. That, you know, only worked to a limited degree. What ultimately won the day was um we were in the process of upgrading our technical network and, and I was negotiating with one of these massive technology companies over a, a very expensive piece of hardware. And I ended up – they gave us kind of their standard cookie-cutter agreement, and I ended up rejecting it and saying, you know, no, for our company, we need a couple key provisions. And I fought hard, and I won. And it just so happened that the things I I won in, in that negotiation were not only important to me, but they were important to Tony. And and the message Tony got out of that, that I could have never communicated with words, it took my actions, was that the success of the organization was my top priority. Um, He he saw, he perceived, and this gets back to the ego discussion, he perceived correctly that I placed the success of this contract and the success of of our network um, at the highest level on my priority list, including... Um, equal to my own priorities of of compensation and the size of my office and all those other things that people measure so carefully. And when Tony figured out um, that I was committed to the same cause he was committed to, we became colleagues. At that point, title didn't matter. Education didn't matter. Where we were from didn't matter. We were in the life raft together, you know, paddling toward the same destination if you'll let me use that metaphor and therefore Tony figured out that his success was going to be influenced by my contributions. I figured out that my success was going to be influenced by his contributions and we bonded over that and and Tony went on to become a massively important contributor ended up retiring from the company uh, literally decades later and and we 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 always got along very well. I wouldn't say we ever became, you know, lifetime best friends necessarily, but but to this day, I, I have nothing but respect for him, and I I believe he would say the same thing about me. And and it comes the, the the key to this story gets back to this ego thing, which is you know people are motivated to work for a shared purpose. Um, you know, study after study shows that one of the most important elements to You know, bringing—I call it—fusing people together, and and the definition of fusion leadership, but bringing people together around a shared purpose, um, giving people a sense that they're part of something bigger than themselves, is is a key element to creating an engaged organization. And the best way to do that um, is for the leader to demonstrate their commitment to the shared purpose through their actions. And and what the worst thing a leader can do is is let their own self-interests dominate their behaviors. And that that litmus test of you know, are you acting in a way that communicates your commitment to the cause, or are you acting in a way that communic- communicates your commitment to your own self-needs, um, that is what won Tony over. And 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 that really is at the core of of what I call fusion leadership. So Yeah. And and, and thank you for asking.
0: No, no, no. It's really all about uh, truth and trust. Right. So, you know, the reality is is that as long as you remain in truth and high integrity and you build trust with people like, uh, your buddy, Tony, um, those people, if they're of the same made from the same cloth, let's put it that way, they're going to understand the value of that. So, getting them to help you toward a common vision is important. Now, you state that 70% of the workforce, and I hear numbers from 70 to 85 all the time, and people talking about disengaged workforce, and they hate their jobs. Well, this is an alarming statistic in our country, um, uh, how do you bring about the best in leaders so that, You know, we can help change this statistic and make it a thing of the past.
1: Well, I I think the single most effective tool to move that percentage is, uh, you know, really driving that engagement through connecting people to a shared purpose and and so that begs the question well how do you connect people to a shared purpose and there's a lot of there's a lot of literature out there and in fact I've seen some of your our podcasts deal with this topic and and I think it's it's all worth reading because it's important stuff and um but frankly I when I see these lists of you know six ways to engage people or the three best approaches to engage people I find them you know often repetitive and and not really actionable, necessarily, um, and I find that there's really one key that simplifies all of this discussion down to one simple behavior, and that is, and this applies to all employees. I happen to be writing about leadership because I think it starts there, but I think it applies to all of us, and that is, are you behaving in a way that is, is, is evidencing your commitment to the shared purpose of the organization, or are you behaving in a way that is just all about you? and 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 that sounds simple but when you think about the everyday little decisions that that we all make especially if you're in a position of leadership little little things like you know do you have an office do you have the corner office do you put your name on the building do you or do you sit out amongst your workers do you who do you prioritize on your calendar do you only surround if you're the CEO do you only surround yourself with investors and board members and other executives or do you actually invest time with frontline workers. You know, when you conduct a meeting, who becomes the smartest person in the room? These are all, these are all examples of little daily decisions we make, and, and an organization of professionals have life experience, they're wicked smart for the most part, and they figure out in a nanosecond, you know, where the leaders, what, what's motivating their leaders. And the moment they detect, that a leader is behaving for their own, exclusively for their own self-interest, they disengage. They don't. Nobody wants to make their leader more powerful or wealthy. Um, on the other hand, I think most everybody wants to contribute to something bigger than themselves, if if they really think about it. And and that that simple distinction um, is what I would point to as as the ultimate tool that drives all these other list of the top ten and list of the top six behaviors. Um, because from that falls everything else. If you, if you really act in, if you really keep your own needs at an equal level to those of the organization, then you're going to invest in people. Um, you're going to connect people to the purpose. You know, you're going to show mutual respect. You're, you're going to behave in a way that just naturally ticks, uh, you know, checks off these other, these other to-do lists of the top 10 or top six, you know, uh, uh, different, characteristics of, of of these behaviors. So um, that, that's how I would answer that question. And I yeah, find, well, it, it can be that, that simple. So simple.
0: Yeah. You don't need to make this uh, whole concept of fusion leadership um, complicated. And I think in your case, what you've done quite eloquently is you've told a lot of stories and I think the stories do well to bring about the leadership and, and the, what I want to call the characteristics of fusion leadership. And one of those was Darren Devence and he was the CEO of Zully. And you, I, you interviewed him for the book. He provided some sound advice in his career early on. And you mentioned it just a minute ago regarding leading meetings versus allowing for others to have inclusion and to hear their good ideas. Um, obviously when you're a leader, there are lots of meetings, too many meetings. Um, can you tell his story and how this mirrored your behavior and what you changed to become a better leader as a result of that?
1: I'd love to, because Darren shared a great story. And and let me just, by way of background, mention for your listeners that um, when I started this book, I, I had just left my day-to-day role after having built what grew to be a fairly large company and, and had been written up as as successful by a lot of different outside observers. and And I had some, um, theories around this notion of engaging employees, and I personally found it very hard. Um, you know, really making the organization at an equal level to your own. I, I challenge myself every day to live by that, and, and it wasn't easy. I struggled with my own ego needs, and so the reason I went out and interviewed eight other nationally recognized CEOs, like the CEO of Lily, who's an amazing success story, is I wanted to test whether or not other people had the same struggles I did. And what I found was, um, which was both a great discovery and a great relief was the answer is yes, it's not easy. And Daryl tells this great story where, um, and, and for those that don't know Zulily, D- Daryl um, literally created a company that was worth billions. He He's one of the Forbes billionaires and um, built this amazing organization um, that has now made many other people, you know, very very wealthy because he shared the wealth, and really revolutionized um, online retailing uh, through Zulily. And with all that success, Daryl tells this great story about early in his career, um, he he was having a performance review by uh, one of his early supervisors, a person who he greatly respected, and that supervisor let him have it, and he said, Daryl. You know, you would be much more successful in your career if you just learned to shut up and listen. (laughs) And as Daryl tells the story, the supervisor went on to give him examples. And Daryl learned, much like I had to learn the hard way, that when he was conducting meetings in his early career, he behaved in the same way I did, which was I I tended to control meetings and be domineering. And and I found myself, and and Daryl seemed to have a similar experience. Needing to kind of show off and, and demonstrate you know um his intelligence and 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 paraphrasing his exact quotes are in the book um and the lesson there that he learned the hard way and I learned the hard way, and we both discovered together was that ultimately squashes a meeting and 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 if you are if you go into a meeting with the subconscious goal of showing how smart you are, you might feel good walking out of there but you are not going to serve your organization. Um, that is going to discourage others from contributing. It's going to it's going to dampen debate, and um, it, it leads to negative outcomes. So uh, Daryl, this amazingly successful individual, was courageous enough to share that story. And I'll bet you many, many people, if they are very honest with themselves and think about how they conduct meetings, would find that they have the same struggles that Daryl and I encountered and 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 that that's that's why I use stories in the book because this stuff is not easy and, and and at the end of the day we're all humans and we're all subject to our own selfish temptations.
0: Yeah, and it was a great story because it exemplifies the fact that listening listening skills for a fusion leader uh, are more important than those demanding skills as you said trying to command and control. Um, those techniques don't work. Now, Dudley, one of the things that you did is you interviewed and you tell a great story about General Robert Van Antwerp, in which one of the chaplains during the Gulf War told him to look for the opportunity to wash his soldiers' feet. Um, what's the significance of this story and what did the chaplain mean in your estimation?
1: Yeah, another great story, and I'd love to take a lot longer than I will to share it because it's really a rich story and it's a part of American history that everybody should know. But uh, General Van Antwerp was involved in the Gulf War. He he went on to lead the Army Corps of Engineers and, and one of the things he did in his career was the rebuilding of New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina. And he's a great contributor to the book, Fusion Leadership. His story is, um, you know, it, it, it of course draws from a biblical reference. And and he would say it ties into um, the principles of servant leadership and and washing the feet of others um, as as an act of serving others. Um, His story is much more practical, however, and and he goes on to describe um, this kind of crisis situation when he was trying to get a battalion uh, to relocate and the work they had to do was more extensive than the time they had available and essentially he and his fellow commanders ended up undertaking the work of the frontline workers and and it was highly unusual um and it really kind of shocked his his um soldiers to see the commanders doing this um frontline work and and of course it it Paid enormous dividends. It 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 built incredible loyalty. Um, It it really caused his whole battalion to become um, intimately engaged with 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 the mission of the battalion. And and he tells this great story. I think Greg, what he meant by that was, you know, the chaplain was of course using a biblical reference, but I think what he meant in in a practical, everyday military sense was, you know, look for opportunities to be hand in hand in the trenches, so to speak, with your soldiers, you know, sharing with them these responsibilities of the mission, of executing the mission at, the, at a frontline level. And by doing that, by actually serving your soldiers, serving those who are in your command in a way that communicates to them that you're committed to their success, um, that message, I, I think is what he was attempting to deliver and and of course it it worked in, in an amazing way and, and and created success in the saudi desert um and i and he went he goes on to describe how it carried his career to um enormous successes that served our country in, in wonderful ways
0: yeah and you you also mentioned in that telling that story about uh the same generals uh, doing crisis management during hurricane uh katrina in new orleans and you had some great examples of this crisis management. You were given a situation when one of your hospital's communications went down um, and had to do some crisis management yourself. What are some of the leadership tools that you used to navigate the crisis that you had and that you would impart on those leaders that are listening to us today uh, when it comes to crisis management?
1: You know, I love this discussion because a crisis, maybe more than any other event that occurs in an organization, and every organization has these, is the ultimate microscope through which you can view the behaviors of of your leaders and, and really learn about their character. And unfortunately, in my experience, many, many leaders in a crisis are the first ones to point the finger of blame and say something like, Gosh, this crisis would have never happened if so and so didn't screw up. Or this crisis would have never happened if the de- you know if if this department had had you know done their job correctly. And 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 of course sometimes there are you know um, examples of incompetence that create crisis. But many times crises are the result, like Hurricane Katrina was, of something unexpected that just nobody really planned for. When when those levees were built. You know, in, in New Orleans, uh, in, in the early days, they didn't contemplate the level of storm surge that Hurricane Katrina created. So, the behaviors that a, a successful fusion leader will instill are the exact opposite. You, 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 you. The first thing to do is take personal ownership of the crisis and say, "Look, our organization's in trouble. New Orleans is in trouble." Uh, to paraphrase General Van Antwerp, because we weren't ready you know we 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 had something occur that we didn't prepare for and 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 we all own this and when the leader takes ownership direct ownership that gives other people permission to take ownership as well and when people have permission to take ownership that's when the people that are affected by the crisis start to develop confidence that a solution is coming, and and that is the fastest way to diffusing um, a crisis. So, short answer to your question: What are the behaviors leaders can undertake in a crisis? I think it starts with taking personal ownership, and and the way you take ownership is not just verbal, um, like General Antwerp did. He drove the streets of New Orleans in an Army Corps of Engineers truck with his crews, and knocked on doors and went door to door. He he went to he calls them uh, fish fries. <laughs> He said he went to almost every fish fry in every parish um, in Louisiana to basically shake hands with with the displaced citizens who were so um, adversely affected to demonstrate that he wasn't going to leave. He was he was going to be part of their community and until the levees were rebuilt and and that that willingness to you know demonstrate that you're going to roll up your sleeves and be hands on. And coming up with a solution to the crisis together with verbal indications of taking ownership are all pieces of evidence that people will evaluate and judge. And and when they see that the leader is personally investing, that's when trust starts to become established and that's when confidence builds. And and that's when um, both those that are uh, charged with resolving the crisis as well as those who are affected by it um, begin to trust their leadership. And,
0: yeah, I think and, your your examples are wonderful. And the fact that, you know, if you look at great leaders we've seen, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, these are the kind of people, if you read their stories, obviously most of my listeners know, they all, let's just use this, they all pitched in. Uh, during times of crisis, you do what you do to get it, get over it and get it done. And figure out how to do it and everybody pitches in and i think that is exemplifies um a true leader it doesn't matter if it's walking the streets or washing the dishes or whatever it might be you're going to get that done um you learned a lot from uh leslie brassick i guess is that how you say her name Braxley, um, yes leslie yeah. uh, and it would be an understatement i would say because you even mentioned in the book she was the founder. Of continuous learning group and now the next season consulting company what is it about leslie and her management style that impressed you so much uh, to include her story in the book
1: oh i look up to leslie in in so many ways um i I mean it starts with the fact that she's a a massively successful business executive um who's who's now built two uh, very successful firms uh, in addition to that, Leslie happened to be, happens to be a uh, have a doctorate in organizational behavior. So, you know, here I come along with my experiences building Integra Telecom, and I've interviewed these other executives. I have these theories about um, engaging people that I'm testing through my interviews with others in these stories, and I, I'm lucky enough to be able to interview Leslie for the book. And Leslie not only brings the personal experience of having built two successful companies, but she brings her PhD and, and intellectual knowledge of, of organizational behavior, what motivates organizations, organizations of people. And she was able to both validate a lot of the principles of fusion leadership through her life experience, but equally importantly through her academic training. And, and that that, was great for me because I, I knew these things to be true because they they were so profound in my own personal growth and the development of my company. But having that, uh, I, I guess, academic validation where she could actually point to, you know, real um, uh, science-based, you know, evidence was enormous. And, and it, it gave me a sense of validation that, that I thought would just be massively helpful for the book and and kind of just adds the overall credibility of of, of the tenets of fusion leadership. So anybody that has the chance to learn about Leslie, and she's written a few books herself, um, there's a lot there. And and I've certainly benefited from uh, everything's like shared with me.
0: Well, I would think given your uh, degree in geophysics from UCLA, you have a reductionist mindset. So you try and bring things down to uh, something that can be proved. Uh, in leadership, as you know, that it all can't be proved. There is something more that is there around consciousness. and Chip Berg, who was the president of the Asian Division of uh, P and G and subsequently moved to Levi Strauss as CEO. Um, what was it about Chip's understanding of defining a clear and compelling vision and inspiring his teams and uniting them and what he you we could refer to, as your fusion leadership, um, if you would, you can in, you can impart the story. But the reality is, this is I would say a culmination of truly what fusion leadership is all about.
1: Yeah, Chip's great, and and he also was a huge contributor to the book. Um, in fact, on the website, uh, Chip has shared uh, publicly his ten lessons in leadership. Chip's background goes back to the military, also. Um, and he he took his military training and, and, as you point out, has done some great things in the corporate world. Uh, the story he shares, he, he was responsible for Procter & Gamble's Asia operations at a time when Procter & Gamble had, did very little business in Asia. And when Chip left that, um, Asia had become, you know, one of their fastest growing regions. And of course, now everyone knows that um, P&G is hugely successful in Asia, thanks uh, originally to Chip's contributions. The story he tells is fascinating. Um, in Singapore, he had a, an organization of people that, rep, that was represented by some 20 plus countries and multiple different religions and, and just all sorts of incredibly diverse backgrounds of people. And he was given the enormous task of taking that group of people and Um, building a culture that would um, result in them being engaged in the Procter and Gamble business model that was developed here in the United States. And to take that kind of a business model that you're not even necessarily the author of and come up with a culture that engages others across such different um, examples of diversity from countries to languages to religions i i can't imagine a more difficult challenge, and um the stories he share are just practical everyday things and and in his case, one of the stories he shares is just a seating arrangement how did how do you how did he set up the floor plan um and what were the results of that? what were the messages that that came out of that and um I wouldn't have time to get into all the details but but suffice it to say. It was incredibly successful, and, and what I love about Chip's story is he brings it down to the everyday simplicity of <laughs> how you arrange the furniture in the office, so to speak, um, and 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 uses that simple step to then connect the dots toward building a culture, and it's it's powerful, and, and I think anybody that reads it will get a lot of take-home value out of it.
0: Well, it is... You know, this. all the stories you tell in this book really do a great job of really conveying the message of fusion leadership. And I know that this, your own personal growth, you can see it in the book, you know, you can actually see Dudley grow as he interviews people and the growth of this um, whole process here. And for my listeners, uh, we've been on with Dudley Slater. And the co-author of this book is Stephen Taylor. Um, We're going to put links to the website, which the website for all of those who are interested is just fusionleadership.org. There you can learn more about the book. There's resources. Um, There's the State of Fusion Assessment Um, you have contact and events. So I'm going to encourage everybody to go out to fusion leadership. That's F U S I O N leadership.org, uh, to learn more about the book and learn more about Dudley and the things he's doing. This is fusion leadership, unleashing, unleashing the movement of Monday morning enthusiasts. Um, if there is one thing Dudley, you would want to leave our listeners with today, um, that are right now, out there, um, attempting to create this united vision and to create this united purpose for people to work from, what would you tell them? What would you say?
1: You know, I I, I would say this, and uh, and I'm just uh, making this up on the fly. So I hope it makes some sense to you to you and as well as as, as listeners to the podcast, Greg. But I, I would say first of all this is not about philanthropy or or you know social justice or being a, a, a do-gooder. This this is about generating exceptional results. And it happens to have a foundation built upon treating others with respect and, and, and building a culture where everybody shares submission. Um, and and what I would leave people with is, you know, Look yourself in the mirror. I, I did, and and I didn't always like what I saw. And 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 I tried to be. I tried to tell real world stories because it's not easy to really ask yourself: Am I behaving right now in a way that's best for my organization, or or, or am I behaving in a way that's best for Douglas Slater? And I, I, I found the more honest I would with the more honest I was with myself in answering that question the more successful my organization became. And, and, and by definition, the more successful I became. Um, and it, it sounds simple, um, but the challenge I would extend to your leaders is is be honest with yourself when you ask that question. And don't just do it once. Do it, if, if, if possible, on a daily basis. With all the little decisions you make, and I think most people will be amazed at, at the power um, that that will bring to their own self development and, and their own leadership style, and it's okay to to recognize that we're not all perfect all the time. And um, but if you if you pursue that journey of of being on the right side of that question as often as possible, uh, I, I think everybody will find that great things will
0: follow. I would agree with you. And again, for my listeners, uh, we've been on with Dudley Slater uh the book is concise uh it provides lots of stories and opportunities for you to grow as a leader and to learn more and to adopt the fusion leadership um principles if you want to say that go to www.fusionleadership.org dudley wonderful having you on inside personal growth thanks for taking this time with my listeners so that they could learn more about your book and how to lead better
1: thank you greg i've 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 Enjoyed it as well, and and I really appreciate the opportunity.